I want to challenge you this morning. We've already seen God do some amazing things in the first meeting. And I want to challenge you now of what God is going to do for you this morning. There's a beautiful tradition. It's it's a Jewish tradition from the time of the temple in Jerusalem. And the tradition was you would never leave by the same door that you entered. So you would never leave the same way you came in. And I love that picture. And that's what I want for you this morning, that you will not leave the same way you came in. And I don't mean geographically, I mean spiritually. You will not leave the same way. Whatever you need from God, you will receive, but not in the way that you're thinking. But we'll get to that in a minute. Romans 5, 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. That's us. That's the way God is looking at us now. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The creator of the known universe. As we sit on this ball of rock we call earth, spinning at 46,000 miles per hour, in a galaxy that's spinning at 467,000 miles per hour, in a universe made up of so many galaxies we can't even count them, God is looking at us. Get your head around that one. We have a thing in our church, it's a three points that we try to live by. Everyone is welcome, everyone is needed, and everyone is changed. Today, you are welcome. This is family. You are safe. If you're a visitor, welcome to the family. You're needed. God chooses to need you. He's not a needy God. He's self-sufficient. But he chooses us. And because of that, he will not leave you as you are. You will be changed if you would just listen and you would just respond. My journey began, I wasn't always a minister. I wasn't always the head of a special educational needs school. I founded a school three years ago, Hope Connor Academy. Me, I hated school. I sky school. And God turns around to me and says, start a school. And I get up and I laugh. He's got a wicked sense of humor. I didn't know what I was doing. We set this school up. The school's running, gets Ofsted inspected, gets outstanding in every area, becomes one of the top three independent SEN schools in the country and the only church run SEN school in the country to be rated outstanding. All of a sudden, everybody wants to send the kids there. But God has always had his hand on me, I believe. Even when back in the day, growing up on the outskirts of an estate called Warwick Estate in West Yorkshire, just outside Leeds. Crime was always there. It was always around me. You know, I didn't make a conscious decision to go into it. I didn't go see the careers lady at school and say, there's a course I can do in armed robbery. You know, it, it was just there. It started with the small things, always the small things, shoplifting, nicking car badges. We used to go into town and nick badges off expensive cars. 
and we'd swap them up with each other and try and build up a collection of all the different makes of cars, your Mercedes, your Jaguar, all the rest of them. And when I told that story at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton in Kensington, they looked a bit nervous because they really did have Aston Martins parked outside. (laughs) (laughs) And it just progressed from nicking the badge to nicking the entire car. And we just got into more and more trouble. Drugs were always there, started with smoking weed, drinking, it progressed on, got bored with that. So then it was the days of the early rave scene. So the main drugs of choice then became ecstasy, cocaine, LSD. And we'd figured out really early on that if we were selling what we were taking, we basically got ours for free. Then it progressed to, if I get other people to sell for me, not only do I get mine for free, I get a shed load of money on top of it as well. And it just progressed on and on and on and on. Until you're going out and with the rave scene, you were doing three, four day benders, big events, just staying out, not sleeping, up on stimulant drugs the whole time. And then the crash would come. The, the come down off all these drugs would come. And someone came up with this genius idea that if you smoked a few lines of heroin, leveled you right off, you felt great. And it did, it worked. Problem was, I liked the buzz of the heroin. So it stopped being just a post-weekend thing and started being a twice-week thing, three-times-week thing. Before you knew it, it was the thing. Whatever drug we were taking, that's what we were selling. There was three of us doing this. Um, One lad, I held him. He overdosed. I held him while he died. Ambulance just didn't get there in time. The other lad was shot and killed when I got sent away. So I'm the only one of the three left. So life was pretty much out of control. I was using about an eighth of heroin a day, about 300 pounds street value. 80 milligrams of methadone on top of that. Most people in here, if you took 20, it would put you in hospital. Things are out of control. So when somebody came to me and said, look, we've got this job planned, armed robbery. We need a driver, do you want in? So I looked at the job, looked at what they had planned. It was low risk. I said, yeah, fine. As you do. So... Back in these days, it was the days before police central databases. What we always used to do was, we'd cross the border from West Yorkshire into South Yorkshire, nick the car in South Yorkshire and bring it back across. Because it would take at least a week for South Yorkshire police to even tell the West Yorkshire police that there might be a nick car in the area. It was great. So we go over to, uh, this give my age away a little bit. Who remembers the Vauxhall Carlton GSI 3000? It was a lovely car, that. It was, it was. So if you're living in the South Yorkshire area around 1997, I'm sorry, but it was a lovely car. <laughs> Being a Vauxhall of that area, all you needed to nick it was a bit of scaff bar and a screwdriver. Uh, some of the old Vauxhalls, you could take the hazard warning light out, fuse, and turn it around and put it back in. It would start on any key. It's brilliant. I'm not telling you to go nick cars, by the way. Don't, don't take that as advice. So we went and got the car, came back across, did the job, job went off without a hitch, burnt the car out. We thought we got away scot-free. We'd agreed to have no contact for a couple of weeks so the police wouldn't patch us up together. But because of that, we didn't know one of the lads on the job had been arrested, got into a fight and Stanley knifed someone across the face. So he's been held on a Section 18 charge. He would get remanded back to police custody. He was an addict. He was detoxing. Eventually, he turned Queen's evidence against the rest of us. First I knew of it was when a guy who's selling drugs for me comes banging at my door. They're all at the top of your road. You've got to get on your toes. I said, calm down. Who's at the top of my road? Armed response, dog units, black marite. They're all at the top of your road. Now, they're either coming for me or the retirement bungalows down the bottom end. Right? (laughs) Don't get me wrong. There's some dodgy pensioners in them bungalows. (laughs) And the reason I didn't want to just run wasn't because of the armed response. Those boys don't shoot you for no reason. It was the police dogs. 
Those dogs have an habit of chewing on things or not be chewed on, right? <laughs> if you find yourself in that situation and you want kids, blokes, don't run. <laughs> so I thought, if I can make it down the back of the flats, get to me mate Joe's, I'll lay low in his. He was an amphetamine addict. I knew he'd been on a bender, so I knew he'd be all paranoid in his flat. So I got down the back of the flat, I got to Joe's. The one time I needed Joe to be in, he was signing on day. He'd gone to get his gyro. So I panicked, kicked the door in, but the yell lock smashed as the door went through. So I shut it back as best I could, but it was obvious it had been kicked in. And I'm watching through a gap in the curtains, saw the police go up to mine, hear the commotion as my door went through, saw them marching off the couple of lads that were left in mine. I thought, they won't say anything, perfect. It'll blow over in a minute, then I can get on the run. And as I'm watching this unfold, another load of police officers came out of the flats opposite. I thought, that's weird. Later found out what had happened was the robbery squad had come to arrest me hadn't even bothered to tell the drug squad who'd been watching me for six weeks that they were coming. So the robbery squad boys are saying, well, we've come for him, but he's not here. And the drug squad boys are saying, well, we saw him come in and he's not come out, so he's here somewhere. So they start going door to door. And as they get round to Joe's, what do they find? A door that's been kicked in. So they push the door open and I came up with this genius plan. I'll pretend to be Joe. <laughs> so they, they come in. Uh, Hello, police, anybody in? I said, oh, what are you doing? He said, oh, it's, it's all right. I said, we're looking for Daryl Tunningly. Have you seen him? I said, oh, no, no, he's a bad lad. Him, he lives up there. You want to stay away from him? I said, we noticed your door's damaged. I said, no, I lost my keys. I had to kick the door through, and I'm waiting for the council to come and fix it. And they were buying it. They were buying this story. And as they're getting ready to leave, this detective sergeant walks in and goes, all right, Daryl, how are you doing? And at that point, it all kicked off. There was a knife on the table where I was standing on the coffee table. They weren't taking any chances because they knew my reputation, so they backed off. The armed response boys came in, a lot of screaming, shouting. They put the cuffs on, the ones they have now with the black plastic bit in the middle. They just started using them. They'd just come out, and I think they're still getting the hang of them. Because as they stood me up, the cuffs dug right in. So to relieve the pressure, I flung my head back and bust the nose of the arresting officer. That pleased them greatly. Back on the floor again, more knees in my back, tie wrapped up and thrown in the back of the van. Fast forward a little bit. Leeds Crown Court, courtroom number three, Judge Hoffman. I changed my plea at the last minute from not guilty. To everyone, everybody on remand is not guilty, by the way. Everyone, unless they're stupid. You're not guilty because you get more phone calls and more visits. Changed my plea at the last minute. Try and get a bit of clemency. Avoid a trial. And my brief had told me to expect 10 years and up. So that's what I thought I'd got myself ready for. And I've been on remand for a while. And on the day, I got handed down seven and a half years. I later appealed it because I got more time than anyone else. And in total, then I got five and a half years. But when he said that, I was standing in the dock, gripping the bar, using every ounce of my strength just to stop my legs from buckling out underneath me. All I could see was those years stretched out in front of me. I wasn't... The whole summary thing they do, I didn't hear any of it. And then the fatal words take him down. Talk about down to the holding cells. Something snapped. I thought, that's it. If I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be the best kind of bad I can possibly be. Gloves are off. No limits anymore. And I started kicking off, screaming, shouting, swearing, punching the door, kicking the door. Group four boys came and said, look, if you calm down, we'll let you have 10 minutes with your family before you get shit back. So I calmed down, they took me through, 
And I then had to do, up to that point in my life, the hardest thing I'd ever done. Because on one side of the screen, you've got your mum, your dad, your brother, sister, all there, crying. But you can't. You can't. You've got to let them believe everything's fine. Stupid statements like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll be out in no time. I'll do it standing on my head. But I wasn't all right. Something had broken. Shipped me back to HMP Doncaster. It was late when I got back. So I got processed, shoved straight on the wing. That morning, I was walking down to the surgery for breakfast. And the two of the inmates who were cleaners on the wing were just stood by this pool table. And as I walked past, I thought one of them said something directed towards me. I didn't like it. So I casually walked over to the pool table, picked up one of the pool balls, and smashed him round the head. And had him pinned on the floor, beating him. Screws came, dragged me off. Got some time in the block. Got brought back onto the same wing, because the lad had assaulted had been shipped out anyway. This time, I made it as far as the servery. I don't know what it was about breakfast. I think just grumpy before I'd eaten. Don't worry, I've had breakfast, you're all right. Got to the servery, and there was a prison officer standing behind the servery. And it, I took what he said to me to be disrespectful, and he said it in front of all the lads. So they were waiting to see how I was going to respond. So I responded by dragging him over the servery, and I started beating him. Prison officer dragged me off again. That one nearly landed me outside charges. I would have got extra time on my sentence. But it got me shipped out to another prison. And I kept repeating the same behaviour, so they kept shipping me out and shipping me out and shipping me out, moving me around until I went all the way down to Leicester, which was 200 miles away from anybody I knew. He wasn't going to get any visits. It was a bit of a stitch-up, really. So I thought, I've got to do something drastic now to get shipped out of here as fast as I can. Now, in this particular prison, it was those three-tier prisons. So you have a netting on the first floor. It was a grotty, grotty prison. The, the prison inspectors went into it. It was supposed to be do a week-long inspection. After two days, they left said, sort it out, I'm shutting it down. It's how bad it was. You turned the lights off at night, you could hear the cockroaches come out. I'm not joking. You could hear them come out. You had to lift your shoes off the floor and put them on your shelf or they'd have got full of cockroaches. First morning out of the cell, I'm on the lat twos. Second landing. Don't know who this lad was, but I decided what I was going to do. I went and grabbed this lad and I threw him over the railing. He was all right. He needed to change his boxer shorts, but apart from that, he was fine. He ate the netting, but he had the desired effect. The governor's like, get him out of my prison now. The kickback was I got starred up, put on category A, but I got shipped up to what was called HMP Wolds at the time. It's now called HMP Humber. But I got a job in the welding shop when I was there, and it was all right. It was quieter. It was cat A prisoners serving longer sentences. The people weren't trying to put themselves in the pecking order. There was none of that pigeon chesting going on every two minutes. And the welding shop was a cushy number. It's £12.50 a week, which in prison is good wages. All right, £12.50 a week. The ironic thing was we were making the internal gates for the prison service. You have no idea how many escape plans ran through my mind working in that welding shop. But I'm in the welding shop and I'm minding my own business and there's this another inmate, lad, coming around with a clipboard. Not unusual, there's always somebody trying to get you on an anger management course or an education program. And he's coming around and I'm watching, I'm watching him get rejected by everybody. And then he comes up to me. And he goes, do you want to go on an alpha? No idea what he's talking about. So what's an alpha? He said, oh, it's in the chapel. As soon as he said the word chapel, I thought, oh, great, he's a Bible basher. I said, look, get out of my face, sunshine, before I slap you. 
And they did the best Speedy Gonzalez impression I've ever seen. Under, under, leap off, and they're gone. Thought no more of it. I'm in the workshop again the next day, minding my own business, welding up my stuff. And he's coming round again. And he was coming towards me. So I'm just standing there thinking, you cheeky beggar. I told you yesterday, and now you're going to get a slap. So I'm just waiting for this kid to get within slapping range. And he must have sensed something wasn't right. Because just as he was about to get within my striking distance, he blurted something out. He went, you get Wednesday afternoon, I bang up and you get free coffee and you get free biscuits. I said, I'll see you on Wednesday, sunshine. It was a sky, free coffee, free biscuits, no bang up, two right I was going. Not only did I go, I unknowingly went and did my very first ever evangelistic act. I rounded up all my mates in the workshop and said, come on boys, we're all going alpha. They went from having six people on this course to 30. Armed robbers, drug dealers, murderers, you name it, on this course. <laughs> One of the fellows was an old boy called Harry Goldsmith. And Harry, legend would have it, ran with the craze. He's an old East End gangster. He'd eventually got arrested when he decided to do one last job and he went to turn over this Jewish diamond dealer. Nicked a car to do the job. Went in, left the car running. Come out, somebody nicked his car. <laughs> so Harry flagged down a London cab and tried to make his getaway. Didn't work. <laughs> He used to sit there going, can't trust you, these days I'll nick anything. So, Harry, you nicked the car in the first place. <laughs> so we go to this course. I don't know what to expect still, but I was not expecting what I found. Three people were in this course. Person number one, chaplain, vicar, with all my stereotypes of church. That made sense. Dog collar on, works for God, that's where he should be. But the other two people, it was too retired. Anglican nuns. How old have you got to be to be a retired nun? <laughs> it was kind of less age concern and more mummy returns is where I'm going. <laughs> and again, with all my stereotypes of church, if they'd have said to me, you know, paint a picture of a fine Christian woman, these two girls ticked every one of my stereotype boxes. Sandals with socks. Commando Christians. And a slight moustache. I later discovered not all Christian women had the optional moustache. Found one didn't have one and married her quick. <laughs> all the women now are going like that. Just checking. So I'm sat there thinking, what have I come to? This is not worth obnoxious. Chocolate ones maybe, but not plain ones. So we just started giving them a hard time. The usual arguments. God doesn't exist. Even if he ever did, what's he ever done for me? What can you possibly tell me about life and living? You've been locked in a nunnery for 900 years. You're older than Yoda. <laughs> and that was the tame stuff. But the thing that stopped me, it wasn't what they said, because I wasn't really listening. But it was what they did. You see, they came back at me every single time with love and compassion every time and for me at that point in my life I genuinely believed I would never have the capacity to love or feel loved ever again I was dead on the inside all I had was hate blackness anger 
So when they hit me with that, it was like being slapped in the face with a wrecking ball. So I just thought to myself, do you know what, Darrell, for once in your life, shut up and listen to somebody else. And when I started to listen, then it started to make sense. By this time, it was week three of the course. And the topic was, why did Jesus die? But for me, the question was, why would Jesus die for a scumbag like you? The things you've done, the things you've partaken in, the things that you've seen, the lives that you've wrecked, families you've wrecked, communities you've wrecked, the violence you've wrought, why, what can he possibly see in me that's worth redeeming? And this is what I was wrestling with. All the way through, I'm wrestling with this. Now, you might sit there thinking, but I'm not, I haven't done those things. You know, I pay my taxes, I've raised my kids. I, I nicked a Mars bar once from the corner shop when I was 10, but that's about it. You're kind of missing the point as to what sin is. Let me put it to you this way. If I had in my possession a DVD that contained everything, and I mean everything, you've ever done, even the stuff you've only done in private, that includes in the shower and in front of that computer screen when you thought nobody was watching, everything you've ever said, even the things you've only said to yourself, and here's the scariest one, especially for blokes. Everything you have ever thought about everyone is on that disc. Who let me just sit down with, I don't know, say, your nan, or your kids, or your wife, or your husband, or your grandkids? Who'd like me to sit down with them and watch that film? Let's have a show of hands. No, no takers. Because the reason is we all fall short. Every single one of us. And yet God has seen every second of that footage. And he loves you anyway. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. So I'm sat there thinking, wow. Wow. Got to the end of the course. They said something like, hope to see you in church on Sunday. And I said something like, if there's free biscuits, I'll be there. Don't underestimate the power of food to get people, obsessed with blokes, into church. You put a fry upon, they will come. When they're giving us a Bible, it was a Wednesday night. There was nothing on the radio. The archers had finished. They had nothing else to read. So I'm just flick, flicking through this Bible. You know, you've all done it, admit it. You know, oh, guide me, God, and you're just thumbing through. It's, not bad. it's bad theology, don't do it. But it dropped open on an Old Testament book called the Book of Job. But it's spelled J-O-B. So if you saw that and you had no theological knowledge whatsoever, what would you think that word said? Exactly. I thought, funny place to find one, I'll have a read. So I start reading the Book of Job. And... I figure it's about a bloke called Job. Funny name to have, but no, never mind. And, and I quickly realized that this guy is like the Simon Cowell of the Old Testament. This guy is loaded. 
He's got everything you could ever wish for. Every model of every car ever made. They just called them camels back then. But he had every one. <laughs> Wealth, status, power. Had the lot. Then in a relatively short period of time, his kids are killed. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. His friends, in effect, turn against him. So does his wife. Everything that can go wrong, goes wrong. But through the whole process, he won't say a bad word against God. His faith just stays there all the way through. And then he ends it all. God gives him everything back and then some on top. But he makes this statement of, I thought I knew God, but now I truly do. And I thought, that's mental. Nobody goes through all of that and ends up with a stronger faith in God than when they began. What can it be? It can't be stubbornness. Nobody stubbornly sticks to something. Well, maybe women. But nobody else. (laughs) Sorry, I'm not going to have your life. Nobody else would stick to that. I thought he's figured out something I'm missing. There's something here that I've not quite got. And I want to know what it is. So I sat there on my bunk and I said the first real prayer I'd ever said in my life. And I can't repeat it word for word because there are quite a lot of swear words in it. But do you know what? God speaks every language, including blue. What he's looking for is a genuine plea. He doesn't care how you do it. It's the condition of the heart, not the language out your mouth. But the gist of it was, God, I believe. I believe that your son died for me. That he stood in that dock and he took that death penalty that I deserve. But I need you to prove it in me. I need you to take away the drug addiction. The violence, the hate, the anger, all those things that are just ripping me up inside. I need you to take them from me. If you do that for me, I will live the rest of my life for you. And what happened next? Nothing. Nothing. If there was a tumbleweed in the cell, it would have blown past at that moment. I thought a warm, fuzzy feeling would have done anything. So I was like, cheers for listening, I'm going to bed. But when I woke up the next morning, there was a series of very, very freaky events. Freaky event number one. Always gagging for a cigarette first thing in the morning, so I'd always make one before I went to bed the night before. Rolled over to grab my smoke, as I always had done. Everything about it the touch, the smell, the thought of it made me want to be sick. I thought, I've eaten something dodgy. Have I picked up a stomach bug? What's going on here? Couldn't be around it. I got me cig, I got me Golden Virginia back here, I got me Rizzlers, I got me wick lights, and I shoved them all out the window. And that's no mean task. It only opens that much. The nausea abated, but I was still freaking out. What is going on? What is going on? And as I started to calm down, the thought of my weed popped in my head. I always had enough for a couple of spliffs in the cell stashed away. Soon as that thought popped in my head, the nausea came back, but with a vengeance, worse than before. And I knew what I had to do. And I went and got my weed, and I put it straight out the window. Whoever was on yard cleaning duty that morning would have thought it was Christmas come early. (laughs) But I'm still freaking out. So I sort of said to myself, Daryl, calm down. Go get a wash. Go get a shave. 
go over to the sink and I start getting a wash. I looked in the mirror and just stopped. Because I didn't recognize my own reflection. I said, oh, man, that guy's smiling. Not just smiling, that guy's beaming. And then I noticed I didn't just look different, I felt different. Everything had just gone. It was just as if someone had unscrewed the top of my head and just poured freezing cold water in and whew, it all just gone. All I had was this big ball of joy trying to break its way out of my chest like something from Alien. If I knew how to dance an Irish jig, I would, I would have done one there and then. And it was at that moment they opened us up for breakfast. My mate next door, Duddy, we ran the wing together. He was a bigger nutter than I was. I walked out, never said a word to him. He just looked at me and went, what's wrong with you? I said, oh no, I'm just happy. <laughs> I didn't know how to vocalise it. So I thought, I've got to talk to somebody that can tell me what is going on. And the only person I could think of was the chaplain. So I went straight to the PO, the principal officer on the wing, to his office. I said, look, I need an application to see the chaplain. It's the way it works in prison. You want to go to the toilet, put an application in, go in three days. It's just the system. So I get my application and I wrote down everything that happened the night before, everything that happened that morning. The PO read it and he rang the chaplain. Get on the wing now, he's freaking out. He thought I was going to flip out on the wing. So the chaplain comes over and he was in his full Anglican get-up. The whole shebang. So I stand in there and I tell him everything. Everything. Just let him have it both barrels. And he paused for... Three seconds, it felt like three hours. And I'll never forget the words that came out of his mouth. He said, the man that went to bed last night is not the same man that's standing here this morning. You're a new creation. And as soon as he said that, I started blubbing. And I'm not talking a little bit sniffly, I'm talking snot flinging, tears flying, wailing. <laughs> and when I started, he started. And the next thing you know, we're hugging. So I'm standing on the wing in front of all of the lads, bawling my eyes out, hugging a bloke in a frock. <laughs> so it got their attention. The chaplain turns to the PO, and the PO's just watching all this. The chaplain turns to the PO and says, I need some time with him, can I take him to the chapel? The PO said, I don't care where you take him, just get him off my wing. <laughs> lads are all eating the breakfast. I turned around to him and said, I'm done. I'm finished. No more drugs, no more violence, no more nothing. If you owe me anything, forget it. It's written off. If you're holding anything for me, keep it. I don't want it. Jesus has saved me. And it was like a rehearsed Scooby-Doo moment. They kind of all looked up from the porridge and went, oh. And it took them a while to realise I was serious. They kept trying to give me things back, thinking I just flipped out a bit, and any moment I was going to smash the face in. From that moment, we never touched drugs. From that moment, never smoked a cigarette. From that moment, never had a fight. God kept his end of the bargain. Mine was to do whatever he wanted me to do for the rest of of any life he would let me have. Not long after that, I was shipped out to HMP Buckley Hall, which was a Cat C, which was weird, because you don't go from Cat A to Cat C with a couple of years left to run with my record. It doesn't happen, but it did. 
The chaplaincy team there had a lady on it called Rita Nightingale. If you've never heard of her, Google her. Get her book. It's an amazing testimony. She became a Christian in the Bangkok Hilton, one of the worst prisons in the world. She was a nightclub hostess out there. Her boyfriend stitched her up and she got done for drug smuggling, given a life sentence. There was an international prayer chain set up and the king of Thailand pardoned her. Pardoned. Never happened before, never happened since. Pardoned her. Three years later, she would literally open the gates and said, you're free to go. So she met me in reception and said, I hear you've got a story to tell. So I told her mine and she told me hers. And her and the team there became integral. I became the prison chaplain. I, I worked there as a chapel orderly. So we were running the Alpha courses. And then we were running them back to back. And it was the days with the old Alpha resources with Nicky Gumble on a VHS where you rolled out the telly with the telly chain to the stand. But for some reason, the lads had trouble connecting with a posh barrister. Can't think why. So we had to stop using the video and translate it from posh into convict so the lads could connect. But it was so successful that we ended up having to run multiple services in the chapel on the Sundays to accommodate all the lads that wanted to come to church. Two of the units on the prison ended up becoming drug-free units because so many lads were being set free from drug abuse and addiction. It was phenomenal seeing what God was doing. I didn't have a degree in theology. I hadn't been to any kind of Bible college. I didn't understand. All I understood was Jesus had saved me and he told me to go and make disciples. That was it. Fully reliant on the Holy Spirit. Sitting down, you have a lot of time to read in prison. It's brilliant. You read an entire, right, what are you going to read today? The whole of Acts. (laughs) No else to do. So you just chewed through the Bible. It's brilliant. You have to try and squeeze 10 minutes in with a toilet door lock while your kids are screaming. Anybody who's got kids understands what that is. Came time for release. And there's a few options of where to go. But the one option that had come up was at a newly planted church in Runcorn, just outside Liverpool. All the scousers in the jail, and there's always a scouser in a jail. I'm not kidding, every jail I went to, there's a scouser. But by, by definition, there's also a Yorkshireman, but so, never mind. He said, don't go there, mate, it's a toilet. That was the advice I had. I had no idea, other than they said it was a toilet. But I knew it was where I had to go. It's the only one I couldn't shake from my heart and couldn't shake from my head. Reverend Mark Finch, JP, magistrate, picked me up from the prison gates and took me to his house. Not a house, his house. His wife, Karen, had made this lasagna. It was the best lasagna I had ever eaten. And I ate lots. I met his three kids. His youngest is his son, Tim, who up until recently was my youth pastor. His middle child is Matthew who's uh, head of ICT in the school and is our children's pastor. And his eldest is his daughter, Rebecca, who's a social worker and she's on staff with the school as a social worker. But she also happens to be my wife and the mother to my two amazing kids, Benjamin and Lydia Grace. That's right, guys. I married the pastor's daughter. (laughs) The plan that God started to unfold was phenomenal. The way we've seen 
ministries open up. We started in one school, and then we're in all five secondary schools with a team of 100 volunteers targeting drug abuse, gang violence. Then we realized that we need to get these kids out of this environment, so let's buy a building. Let's buy a building where we can actually take these kids and spend some real time with them, turning their lives around through the gospel. So then we started something called the PSI Project, Progressive Social Inclusion. Before you know it, we contracted by the pupil referral unit, by the education authority, to take these kids. We openly said, we are Christian and our intention is for these kids to become disciples of Jesus Christ. They said, we don't care as long as you'll have them. So we're seeing some of the toughest kids in our town, scousers, all sorts of scallies, chavs, being turned around by the gospel. And then we thought, well, this isn't big enough. We need to have these kids for even longer. What can we do? I know. Let's open a school. But with no no suitable buildings, what are we going to do? I know. Let's build a building in one of the poorest, most deprived areas in the the world. Runcorn is in the top 10 for all the wrong reasons. Building a building on paper financially made no sense whatsoever. 1.2 million pounds later, and it's there. I can give you so many stories of so many miracles of how that money came in. It's phenomenal. We thought we'd have a bit of a grace period where we could settle into the building. No, it filled. It just filled. The school became one of the top three schools in the country after Ofsted rated it outstanding in every area. So that started to fill. Before you know it, you're having to manage staff teams and, and do budgets. And I'm thinking, ah, I'm just an ex-con. God's got a wicked sense of humor. When this book came out, there's a whole story of how it came out. It was a miracle in itself. I haven't got time to go into that. I'll tell you another time. But it's gone around the world. It's been translated into three languages so far prisons throughout the world, churches throughout the world, and just seeing what God is doing through it. I purposely didn't have my picture anywhere on it because I wanted it to be, see, it's God's story that I happen to be in. It's not about me, it's about him. The only reason I am here, alive, is because of him. The only reason I am breathing is because of him. When I say he saved me, I literally mean he saved me. Earlier this week, I was not in a good way. I started getting stomach pains. They became crippling stomach pains. Doctor came out to see me on Thursday. He said, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's appendicitis. That was on Thursday. When he told me I had appendicitis, I said to God, I can't have appendicitis because I'm busy. And if you want me to carry on being busy for you, I can't have appendicitis. So the church started to pray. The doctor said, I'll ring you. I won't send you straight to the hospital. We can treat you from home for now. I'll ring you first thing in the morning and we'll see where we go from there. Around me Friday morning, he said, how are you doing? How, did, how are you getting through the night? I slapped like a baby. So oh, did you? I said, how, how are you doing now? I said, I'm fine. I said, what do you mean? I said, no pain, I'm fine. I've had breakfast. I said, that's not possible. So whether you think it's possible or not, I'm fine. So I went down to the doctor, he examined me again, and he's like, hmm. I would have bet my house that you had appendicitis. I said, well, the church had been praying, and now I'm fine. He's a Muslim, he was scratching his head. You see, if I'd have told the eldership here that I was ill on Thursday, they'd have probably cancelled things, or I got somebody else in. So I'm telling them now, so they won't get angry with me. 
That's just one occasion of miracles. Miracles I see week in and I see them week out. When was the last time you came expecting to see a miracle? When was the last time? Have you forgotten that the word of God says signs, wonders, and miracles will follow the preaching of his word? Have you forgotten this? Have you forgotten that he gives you all power and all authority over sickness and illness, over demonic powers? Have you forgotten these things? Church, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten the sway that you hold? You are the arbiters of society's future. You have the answer. You're the only ones that have the answer. And you're the only ones that have the power and authority to carry it through. How many people in your life are you discipling right now? How many? Can you name them? Are they in your life? Part of your life that you're sowing into them? The favourite time for me in the week is Tuesday nights when I've got a group around my house and they are my guys and I'm discipling them. I don't just stand on platforms. I go out and, because I'm on a platform, you think I'm excluded from the commands of Jesus Christ? Go and make disciples of all nations? I'm not excluded from it because I'm on a platform. I'm too busy speaking, God, I can't possibly obey you. No! We're all commanded to do it. To seek the Lord our God first. To love him first. Then love our neighbour. Who's our neighbour? Do this for me. Go and do it. It's them! <laughs> Jesus said the world out there will know his love. How? I'm waiting. By our love for each other. Not by our programmes, not by our alpha courses, not by our food banks, not by our cap centres. By our love for each other. The early church, there was no need among them. And everybody out there were like meerkats in the sand dunes going, ooh, what's going on in there? And they wanted in. Because they saw this amazing love being demonstrated. Do you even know what's going on in the life of the person sat next to you? Do you know what issues they're facing? Do you know what trials they're going through? Can you even remember their name? Come on, church. We are the church. This is supposed to be the bread and butter of who we are. Depending on which translation you read, there are something like 50 commands that Jesus gives. If I put you on the spot and said, can you list 10? Would you get nervous? Come on, there's 50. You should know them inside out. Give me 10. You see, there are two types of evangelism demonstrated in the Bible. Two guys, one called Barnabas. One called Paul. Barnabas, great encourager, he'd come alongside you, nurture you. Paul would do all those things, but first he would kick you. And that's the school of evangelism I'm in, unfortunately, for you. Jesus is the last thought on my mind when I fall asleep. He's the first thing on my mind when I wake up. I repent every day. Every day. Because I'm a sinful, prideful man. And I need his grace every day. Too often the people up here present themselves as perfect. I'm not perfect. I struggle with the same things you struggle with. I wrestle with the same things you wrestle with. I fail in the same way you fail. But I don't stop fighting. 
I don't stop pushing on, pushing into him. The time has come to raise the temperature. The time has come to get off the fence. The time has come to stop being despondent. Rocking up submarine Christians. You know what I mean by that? Surface on a Sunday, then dive, dive, dive. Never to be seen through the week. The time has gone. Both actually and metaphorically. But are you ready to stand before God and say no? That's it. I'm serious now. I'm going to abandon everything from my old life. Everything. And I'm going to follow you. And Jesus never made it easy. Even when a guy wanted to go back and bury one of his family members. Jesus said, if you go back, fine, but don't follow me. Let the dead take care of the dead. Harsh. That is harsh. Let me just go sort this. No, you can't drop everything now and follow me. You can't follow me. Are you ready to stop building your little lives here? With your savings accounts and your pensions. I don't have a pension. We've got a financial advisor in our church. He's trying to push me to have a pension. I said, well, I don't want a pension for I don't want to stay here any longer than I have to. My pension's in heaven. The quicker I can check out, the better. This place sucks. I belong in heaven. Why would I want to stay here? It's like having a Ferrari and choosing to drive a 1970s Lada. Why would you do that? The time has come. Because if we can't do this, if we can't demonstrate to the world that we are set free from our hurts, our habits and our past, if we can't do that, if we can't show them that we love each other so much, it's almost sickening. It's when you see those young couples who have just fallen in love and that's all we need to be. No, no kissing. Like, but you know what I mean? Don't start kissing each other. Every church has a kissy lady and a huggy lady. Don't they? They usually wear tie-dye skirts. The time has come for you to get serious now. For you to turn up here on a Sunday and expect to see the miracles. And then take those miracles as testimonies and you take them out there and you proclaim them to the world. The time has come for you to have your testimony on your lips. To have it done ready so you've figured it out of how you're going to share. Not to start fumbling over your words or start speaking Christianese to people in a way they just don't understand. You've all done it, haven't you? We, we, we did it before, when if I, if I said, say amen, you'd all just shout amen. What are the context of your life? Do you just randomly throw a bit of Greek or Hebrew into it? And the, you know, Tesco checkout, there's your receipt, love, oh, amen. No, you don't. We've forgotten how to actually speak English. Whatever your native language is, we've forgotten how to just communicate, because we've been in the church context for so long, we've become weird. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with weird. I'm talking about weird, weird. The time has come to get back to our first love. Now we're going to have a time of ministry, but we're going to do it slightly differently to maybe how you've done it before. Because I want you to respond in this way. Mostly, when people respond, they come seeking the hand of God with a shopping list. 
where they want God to do. They want God to intervene. They want God to heal. They want God to fix. That's the wrong way. It's unbiblical. You're supposed to seek the face of God. You're supposed to seek him out of a desire to be with him and no other desire. Because if you go to him seeking his hand, what do we produce? We produce consumer Christians. They're only in it for what they can get. And the whole faith is dependent upon their circumstances around them. If things are going well, faith is good. If things start going bad, you don't see them at church. And that's wrong. So when you come, come for no other reason than you want to encounter God. Because in his presence, there is no sickness. There is no sorrow and there is no suffering. You don't need to ask. You just need to come. That beautiful picture from the story of Esther. Her issue had a name. It was called Haman. She had the heart and the eyes of the king. She could have just gone straight to him, told her what Haman was planning and have him put to death. Job done. But she didn't do that, did she? Three times, three times, she just came into the presence of the king with her problem, with Haman. Three times. Cooked a meal, everything. And just by being in the king's presence, the king knew that something wasn't right. And the result, Haman was put to death. The problem, fixed, resolved. She didn't have to go with the begging bowl to the king. She just had to be with the king because she had the king's eyes and the king's heart upon her. You have the king's eyes and the king's heart upon you. On you, right here and right now. While we're sitting on this big ball of rock that we call earth, that's spinning at around 46,000 miles per hour, in a galaxy that's rotating at 467,000 miles per hour, in a universe with so many galaxies they can't be counted, that God, the God of all of that, the God who with one word can and did stop it from spinning. Don't believe me? Get your Old Testament out and read the story. There's a day when the sun stood still. Just like that. It says in Hebrews, he controls the very universe by the power of his word. Full stop to full stop. Power of his word. There was a time when people spoke the name of Jesus and if they weren't careful and walking past the graveyard, dead people got up. That's power. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll come up. I'm not trying to generate or create. I'm just trying to remove distractions for you. I'm not one of those Pentecostal preachers that can only do this bit with music. Or you have your own keyboard player that comes along. These guys, their gifting is to lead God's people into his presence. That's what they're going to do. And you've got a great worship team. You're blessed with a great worship team. I mean, this poor bloke here, somebody's nicked half his guitar. church you need to buy him a new guitar what are you doing <laughs> it's like we're an offering for the man come on 
And his keyboard needs to be red. Because apparently, that's the thing to do now. You could paint it. I could talk forever about church culture and what's wrong with it, but we ain't going to go there. There is nothing anointed about this bit of carpet. Okay? Nothing special. This carpet came from the same shop as that bit of carpet. The reason we ask people to respond, to step forward, is because it's a physical representation of what your heart and soul is longing for. You're getting off your backside and you're making an effort to be with God. To be with God. So as we start to worship, and I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit just to come. Simple as that. You don't have to hype the Holy Spirit up, you just call him down. Simple as that. He is all sufficient. And his power and presence over your life as you seek his face, you will just feel your problems, your cares, your worries, your illness, they will just melt away. Just melt away. If you've never actually stood and made that commitment of Jesus, I die to this world. I leave everything behind. I want your dreams to be my dreams and, and your hopes to be my hopes. I, I confess my pride of how I've tried to do it on my own. Forgive me, Lord. I want to follow you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. If you don't remember doing that, encountering Jesus face to face, the challenge I give to you is you haven't done it. I will never forget the first day I met with God. And nor should you. If you haven't had that experience, that encounter, you need to come and commit to repent. It's an old-fashioned word. It means do 180. Turn your back on the world that was. The Bible talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what repentance is. It's not a scary word that's hard to understand. It's really simple. You're walking away from that old life and you're giving everything over to God. When you feel the pull to go back to that old life, you say, no, I'm giving it to God. And every day you keep doing that. And every day it gets a little bit easier. And every day you get a little bit stronger. And the Bible talks about you growing from faith to faith to faith. Every little day you'll see a little bit more of God, a little bit more of him working in your life. And you'll grow from faith to faith to faith. And before you know it, you'll be believing for miracles. You'll be praying for that sick person, not saying, oh God, if it be your will. You'll be praying at the sickness and saying, be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. But are you ready for it? God has not finished with you. If you're still breathing, I don't care how old you are, if you're still breathing, God hasn't finished with you. It's that simple. I don't care how young you are. God wants to work with you. He wants to use you to preach his gospel, to bring the lost to be saved. He wants to use you. As we worship now, come forward. Just make that step and say, God, I just want to be with you. You might feel people putting their hands on you to pray for you. It's the elders of the church. It's completely biblical. It's the elders acting in the authority that God has given them to speak over your life. So come. Don't wait. Jesus is returning. It might be in the next five minutes, so you better be quick.
Holy Spirit, we just invite you now. We invite you, Holy Spirit. We reach our arms out to heaven. We stretch our eyes out to you. We open our hearts and our souls cry out to you. We long for you, for your presence. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. Counsel us, minister to us. In the presence of the King. We desire to see you. We desire to be with you. Our hearts long for you for no more than that. It is our true desire just to be with you. To be with you. Set a fire in our soul, Lord. Let us be with you. Let us be with you. be with you as the team now join with the angels of heaven in rejoicing and worshipping the king Jehovah the name above all of the names you stand in his presence and as you stand in his presence you will receive all that you need all that you need